0: This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at t slash now. Hey everyone, today we begin our month-long celebration of Black Music Month with PJ Morton, the New Orleans-based singer-songwriter, producer, and keyboardist of Maroon 5. Morton recently earned a Grammy Award for Album of the Year for his contributions to Jean-Baptiste We Are. But even though he's been up for multiple Grammys, he almost gave up on the idea of a solo career altogether. But then he moved back home to New Orleans and reconnected with what got him interested in music in the first place. Now, Morton's releasing his eighth studio album, Watch the Sun. The new album is made up of 11 original songs and features collaborations with artists like Stevie Wonder, Nas, Jill Scott, and Wale. On today's episode, P.J. Morton talks to Bruce Hedlum about what it was like growing up a preacher's son and how his relationship with gospel impacted the way he makes music. He also talks about being a recovering workaholic and his friendship with the great Stevie Wonder. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Here's Bruce Hedlum and P.J. Morton.
1: You played organ growing up, right? Oh, yeah. What was the organ in your uh, church? Yeah, like a B3. Oh, it was? Okay. Yeah, it was a B3. Uh,
2: Yeah, my my brother-in-law taught me. I learned on the job, basically, and by ear, you know. But he taught me to draw bars and settings, and I kind of just built from there.
1: Yeah, I was amazed to hear that. Well, I heard it on your record. You said it. You don't read music. I don't read music, yeah. (laughs) So you learned to play in church Mm -hmm. by ear? By ear, yeah. 100%. Wow.
2: It kind of blows my mind, you know? When I think about the things I can play, I just remember not being able to play, Mm -hmm. and then I remember being able to play. (laughs) I don't really remember learning. Like, the only thing I remember, I would just play the same thing over and over, and then I would make a mistake, and my ear would say, oh, that's the chord from that song. Oh, that's how they did that. It literally, like, one foot in front of the other.
1: Now, your album, New Orleans, Mm -hmm begins with a tape of your father, Paul S. Morton. That's right, yeah. Introducing you at church. Well, we
2: were actually at home. Oh, you were at home? Yeah, so my dad, every year since like 1983, I mean, I remember the camcorders got smaller and smaller through the years, Mm -hmm. but that was the big one. Every year though, we would have a talent showcase during Christmas. It was me and my sisters. We all had to do something. You know, my sister was a singer. Mm-hmm. You can see me through the years go from drums to trying to play guitar to finally you see me settling on piano about seven years old or eight, you oh, know? Okay. And uh, that was, I think that was eight or nine. Do you remember what you played? Yeah. I used to think I invented this. Uh, uh, it was like, oh no, da, 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 da I really thought that I wrote that. I don't know okay. why, why I thought that. But that was what I played. I remember that clearly.
1: <laughs> now, you were playing in church. Your father ran the church. Oh, yeah. He was the pastor and, of course, a, an
2: amazing singer as well. So music was really important. Yeah.
1: yeah. Now, what was the relationship between church music and secular music in your house? Because your dad is a very big gospel singer. Yes. He's a very big gospel
2: singer who also was born and raised in Windsor, Ontario, Canada. So he was right across the tunnel from Detroit. So... There was so much music in gospel, of course, the Winans and Clark sisters, but Stevie, all of that stuff that was happening as well. So there was a high appreciation for music in the house. And it was almost like you could listen to it because not on Sundays. We weren't allowed to listen to mm-hmm. secular music on Sundays <laughs> on the radio. It had to be gospel music. Uh, but one of my, my dad's favorite singers was Anita Baker. I remember Michael. Jackson and Prince and Stevie and Whitney Houston. I remember hearing that stuff in the household, too, here and
1: there. You know, one of your dad's big hits, Let It Rain. Yes. Which he did after Katrina. He does a little purple rain in there. Yes, a little purple <laughs> rain. Yeah, I used to try. I used to travel
2: with him as he ministered, you know, mm-hmm. the, and did revivals and stuff. We would go full purple rain on there. So oh, is that, that right? Yeah. So that's that's what I mean by the influence was always there. My dad is a musician, so you know, as a musician, you can't pick and choose what's good and bad. I think it became more of an issue if you decided to be a recording artist doing that. You know, once you decided, oh, I'm gonna be a secular artist. That is kind of when you started to get some. Put- Pushback. Okay. And did you get pushback from him? I did. Yeah. Initially I got pushback because I was a very young songwriter. So I think for a preacher's kid, it always comes off as rebellion at first. You know, mm-hmm. he's just trying to go against what we're doing. You were a PK. I'm a PK. Yeah, yeah. I'm a PK. But for me it was much purer than that. And it was coming from a real place. And I think once they realized it wasn't like a rebellious phase. They became like my number one
1: supporters. It wasn't, this is the family business.
2: Yeah, I felt that pressure initially. I, I was. It's me and my two sisters. I'm the only boy. I'm his namesake. You know, the mm-hmm. J is for junior, <laughs> you know? <laughs> so it was almost like that path was written out for me. I mean, it was like, this is yours, you know? But for me, I didn't want that. And my dad never quite put that pressure on me. It was more coming from everybody else members or like just in general, because my dad was known outside of just our church. Of course, he traveled all around the world. And I think everybody just assumed that. So I felt the pressure from everywhere. But internally, I think my dad saw something in me and saw that I was going to be different. And, and he eventually empowered me to do that. He came
1: around. Oh, yeah. Big time. I don't know the, the gospel style so well. Mm-hmm. Is there a lot of Detroit gospel and what your dad did? Oh, yeah. What's Detroit gospel? What's New Orleans gospel? I think New Orleans gospel
2: always felt like
1: New Orleans music in
2: general. It was, I think, the blues and the jazz of all of that was all mixed in. Detroit, at that time, when I was growing up, was always kind of ahead of the game. I mean, when you talk about the... Um like the Clark sisters, Twinkie, who was the producer and one of the lead singers of the Clark sisters, it sounded like Stevie Wonder. It just had gospel lyrics. So they mm-hmm. were pushing that line of it feeling like what current music was doing. She said she got that song from like Master Blaster, you know? But it's saying,
3: You made my day, you made my way.
2: So it was like very modern, you know, right. for that time. And New Orleans, I think, was still in the... traditional sense
1: everybody says well he's a gospel piano player and i don't really yeah. know what that means people say well this is the gospel scale and i think yeah. well, that's just the scale everybody uses isn't yeah, it see i think maybe gift and curse but because i didn't
2: learn music i can't relate to any of that i don't i don't even know scales so i don't you know really what I mean? you don't know any scales no, i mean i don't know what they are no. you know yeah, I, yeah. I know but and i know that's a g major scale but i don't know what a gospel scale is i mean I guess some people would look down on that. <laughs> you know, so. which is there were some purists, you know, I have a weird relationship with some purists because I think the genius is being able to do it, you know, mm-hmm. without being taught. I think that before there was notation, somebody had to play it to write it. And I think somewhere along the line, notation became uh higher than being able to do it. But I take pride in the fact that it came through me, it comes through me and that it's a gift that was given to me. I'm in a huge pop band, (laughs) you know what I'm saying? It's like, I just play music, Mm -hmm. whatever the moment calls for. So I don't really get into that or I'm not even sure what that means exactly. Of course I can play church music because that is my foundation, you know, but I don't know that I would consider myself a gospel Mm -hmm. piano player.
1: Well, your friend, John Batiste. Yeah. He went to Juilliard, He went to Juilliard, yes. So you can just say to him, yeah, I didn't have to do that. (laughs) I mean, listen, I think
2: those things, and it depends where you're taking it, right? I mean, he's able to score soul and like do all these amazing things, you know? These these different things are tools for different paths and he's undoubtedly a genius. I mean, when he sits at this piano, yes, he learned the notes, but you can't teach what he does. I remember, you know, uh, a friend of mine, who actually was who did go to Berkeley and came to start playing with me, he would tell me stuff like that's wrong, are you playing that wrong <laughs> <laughs> And I was like, you know, what do you, you there's no such thing, you know yeah. what I mean um and he had to eventually learn that uh but i I do think, yeah, because I don't know it allows me to not know what the boundaries are supposed to be, and also the things that I listen to I mean. When you talk about Stevie or you talk about Quincy, they would have different choices, you know, and th- these are the things that i that I grew up paying attention to was, well the Beatles as well. I mean, when you talk
1: about like different chords and different structures, those guys mm. they were they were all about it. Can you show me, and maybe this will probably help listeners, well, you've done a couple great versions of how deep is your love, yeah, and a lot of your music is like this, including your gospel music. Your gospel music sounds like love songs. Your love songs sound like gospel music, <laughs> which is always nice. You're always like, is he talking about God? Or he uh, talking about you got to listen, right? yeah. Uh, yeah. So can you just show me when you probably heard that song growing up in the yeah. 80s because it was on radio. Mm-hmm. When you sat down to say, okay, I'm going to try and play it. What was that process like? Yeah, what's so crazy is my sister
2: and I used to transform songs from, I mean, Annie was our favorite movie growing up. So I would always, always already hear those songs a certain way. Like, so the BGS are. How deep is your love? How deep is your love? I really mean to learn. Right, and for me, I heard it. How deep is your, your love?
3: How deep is your
2: love? I really mean
3: to learn. Cause we're
1: that's church right there.
2: In a
3: okay, stop
1: there. What's yeah. church about it?
2: That's where I, that's why I hear that voicing when oh, I say okay. church, I mean the voicing of it. Cause I could have easily said, cause we're, yeah. cause we're living in a world, right? But I said, cause we're
3: living in a world of love, us down.
2: you know? Yeah. So it's just some voicings that, I mean, some people call it church, some people call it soul. I hear it that way in my head
1: hmm And they're probably vocal lines originally, right? It's like a choir sound almost. As far as what? Uh, what you were just playing.
2: Yeah. I mean, yeah. That, that chord right there is like, you know, I think you, I use that a lot, like a dominant. Um, but I hear those voicings, those harmonies. That's a very
1: yeah. gospel thing as well. Yeah. Wow. Did you ever hear from... Robin Gibb or, I guess Barry Gibb, pardon me, Barry, right? Yeah, but,
2: um, I did. Well, I heard from the social media account. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> so I'll tell you. I Here. talked to somebody, but no, I got word that they loved that version. And uh, I'm I'm honored, man. It was always one of my favorite songs. And it was a last minute decision to record it. It became one of, I have to play that now. You yeah. know, you recorded that on, is that on Gumbo? It's on Gumbo and then Gumbo Unplugged with Yubba. And then I did it on the piano album again with Alex Isley, a totally different
1: broken down piano version. Yeah, which is a great, great, your your whole piano record is. Oh, thank you, man. It's fabulous.
0: We have to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more from Bruce Headlam and PJ Morton.
4: Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3%.
0: Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash Boar's nest. We're back with more from Bruce Hedlam's conversation with PJ Morton.
1: Did you study a lot of the traditional New Orleans players? You remind no. me of Alan Toussaint. Maybe because you're a songwriter and you accompany a lot of people.
2: I was a church kid, right? So I missed a lot of that. And because I didn't read, I didn't go through the traditional jazz path in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. You know, it kind of made me an outcast, actually, growing up there because I didn't fit into any New Orleans box, really. Alan Toussaint, later on in life, became a blueprint for me because he represented what I wanted to be, you know, which was... New Orleans through and through, but really lend my hand outside of New Orleans as well in a big way. The way he had a studio in New Orleans that was all his own, you know, it was a blueprint for me. And you're right, the way he was a producer for a lot of different artists is how I saw myself. So Alan Toussaint was, he was the person I looked to to say, that's what I want to be. But that came later on in life. He was a couple of generations ahead of me, but no, I didn't. I didn't study in that way. I was studying gospel musicians, and then I got when like Chick Korea. And for me, though, although I was a musician, I was always drawn to the songs. It was always the songs over the playing, over the singing. So I never really studied outside of Chick, um, trying to learn Spain. I I never really studied keys that way. I studied songwriters. So I was drawn to Stevie, of course. Like that's what started it all for me.
1: Do you remember what the song or album was with him?
2: I do. I don't remember if it was an album, but a friend of mine gave me a cassette tape. And I knew, I'm an 80s baby, right? So I knew, I just called to say I love Mm -hmm. you and, you know, part-time lover when I was, you know, I knew those songs, but I hadn't heard that early voice. And it was a, I never dream you're leaving somebody. Mm -hmm. that, That song, I can remember playing that cassette tape and hearing that and like my mind just like how does why is this making me feel this way you know um and soon after uh he gave me Donny live Donnie Hathaway live it seemed like that was happening all like back to back to back in my mm-hmm. life I don't remember how much there was a break in it but then I heard the Beatles and I'm like whoa! like what are these melodies and how they saying the same thing but a different way? And then that got me to James Taylor somehow. I actually was watching an award show and they they were honoring him and they were playing Fire and Rain as he was walking up.
1: And I was like, what is that? You really were a church kid. You hadn't heard James
2: Taylor. I hadn't heard James Taylor. I, heard yeah. James Taylor. And I knew the big stuff, you know, but like it was a different mind as a songwriter. It was like, I started to want to
1: do that. How old were you when you heard Stevie Wonder and Donnie Hathaway?
2: That was like 12, mm-hmm. somebody gave me that stuff at 12. Like again, I had heard Stevie and he was just a part of it, you yeah. know. Uh, I hadn't heard Donny actually, but that was about 12 or 13. The Beatles, my mom told me stories cause my name's Paul and um, my little sister was born and she got a lullaby CD and it had Hey Jude on there. So I was really young at that time, I was probably seven.
1: But I didn't really get to the Beatles until later. So what was it like when you finally met Stevie Wonder? And how did you meet Stevie Wonder?
2: So, like, met in person. There were a couple of, like, quick ones. Uh, I remember Kirk Franklin is the first person that introduced me to him in person. But that was really quick. And then 2013, I had a song called Only One that I wanted him to play harmonica on. Didn't know him at all, but I just was like, you know... I'm just going to try. <laughs> so I reached <laughs> out to a drummer friend of mine, Teddy, who was played for him. And he hooked me up with a stylist of his who happened to be from New Orleans and happened to be familiar with me. So she was down to get him the song. If you can get it to him, that's, I mean, that's, it's two things. He's got to want to do it and you got to be able to get it to him, you know, but it's not like you you can sell him on the idea of this being a good uh, career move for him. You know, it's (laughs) like, he's just got to want to do it. He could really break it for you. Yeah, yeah, man, Stevie, I'm telling you, if you just do this one, it's going to take you to the top. You know, it was none of that. I feel like he heard some of himself in it and was down and he he cut harmonica on it that still hadn't met him in person and then we were on a plane and i didn't know he was sitting behind me and i went to the restroom and stevie's comes behind me like made to use the restroom too and i turn around I'm like stevie it's uh it's pj you just did my song and he was like oh i love that song and we we connected then and that was special, but it didn't really turn into a full relationship until maybe uh, three years ago. He invited me to uh, do um, Toys for Tots, his Christmas thing, and we did a song together. And we really started to build then after my album Gumbo first began. He told me he loved that song. He told me he wished that he wrote that song, which is, you know, I don't need any more compliments in life. Um, That's it. You know, that's it for me. And so now we have a bond that is, and I'm not over it, but he told me like, you can call me like, you don't have to, you know, I'm I, we're friends. I'm like, you're Stevie Wonder though. You know, it's like more than I ever dreamed. This is, that's the biggest, that's the biggest thing I ever dreamed. So it's amazing. Have you ever talked
1: about songwriting with him?
2: We talk about it in a way. We more talk about life, but what's fascinating about Stevie to me is his recall, I don't have that. I can't, I got, if I don't record it in my phone and like have a voice note, I'll forget something great. He'll recall 10 songs that he's never put out that he's got and he'll just run through them. I think it just speaks to his genius, you know, that he can hold all of this stuff. Full songs, I mean, he'll play them for me. But we never really talked about technique or anything. I mean, I think he just appreciates what I do and he tells me he he's not bashful about telling me how much he supports me. I think he, that in general, I don't think that's unique to me. He's very encouraging to artists and, and writers that he
1: believes in. Now, you almost, you've done a lot of producing. I think you won your first Grammy for India Ari. I think. Yeah, well, well, not technically,
2: so I had to I had to come back. I thought the Grammy rules I I didn't get a trophy for that album. I wrote and produced on the album and it won Best R and B album, but I didn't produce a certain percentage of the album, okay. so I didn't get a trophy for it. But yeah, I was a a part of this Grammy award winning album my junior year in college. Yeah. Wow. Did you take time
1: off from college for that?
2: No, I went right. It made me want to quit. The only thing that got me through is I had one semester left. I finished Morehouse in Three and a half years and that was my junior year, the first semester. And I was like, Oh, this is all I wanna do. Like, I gotta get out of here. But I had like one more semester. So I'm like, let me just let me knock this out.
1: That's my, the that's the best summer around. job ever. Oh, for sure. I was mowing lawns. You were you were winning <laughs> Grammys.
2: Man, it was amazing. I moved off campus, my second year and met Indy Iree right there in the apartments we were living in. Well, her brother was living there, and she happened to be up there and heard me playing the piano. And we started talking about Stevie Wonder, and she hadn't put out her first Motown record yet. She let me hear that, and so when the other one came around, we were friends by then, and I had this little song and played it for her, and she loved it, and the rest was history. And you'd never produced before that? I had produced some gospel stuff, yeah, Yeah, because my first placement as a producer was when i was 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 15 i did the song, 16 it came out. And so I kind of was used to it a little bit, but that in my mind that is the
1: first thing that I I truly produced. But then after a couple of your own albums, you were going to you were going to stop doing solo stuff. Yeah. Why what what was going on? Yeah, right before Gumbo, I was just um Gumbo was going to be the last thing. I think for
2: me, I had been pushing independently for a long time. And, you know, it's an uphill battle. I mean, it can be, you know, and I just felt like I didn't necessarily fit in. I would give these songs, I could write songs for other people. But when I did my presentation, it was just kind of like the labels didn't get it. You know, we went to every label at one time and couldn't get signed. Um, And I just felt like, all right, listen, I was in my room five a few years by then. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, you know, this is great. I mean, I'm fine. You know, I'll still produce and write. And I think part of it was I just wasn't successful at being myself or it just hadn't come together, you know. So then I signed a major deal. I was with Young Money, uh, with Lil Wayne and Universal. And that was cool. It was a learning experience. But then that didn't work out. So I asked to get off the label and I was indie again. And I'm like, you know what, I'm leaving L.A. and I'm leaving all of this. (laughs) Like I just, you Mm -hmm. know, so Gumbo kind of was my I was just. Disarmed, you know, I wasn't thinking about anything business wise, radio, PR, none of that. I just was like, I'm just kind of make what I want to make, which I realize now that that's what was missing. Just me overthinking some things. Yeah, I was making good songs and doing all of this, but I wasn't fully connecting because I had those blocks and I wasn't creating fully in a free way not since my very first album it just put me back where i was supposed to be i guess
1: because
2: mm-hmm. that's when a lot of this the more more recent success started
1: yeah and you've got your own studio now yeah got and my you've got own, your own Gumball label
2: studios got my own yeah 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 more records yeah
1: mm-hmm. but you're still producing for other people and yeah, still doing...
2: producing and we just um snow allegra shout out to snow allegra she was just up at the grammys for a song that i uh helped write now i'm going to continue to do that i just love other voices i love other expressions so i always want to um lend my
1: hand when i can when i can yeah. add something and you're going to restore buddy bones house yes
2: yes yes it was a a happy mistake that happened my after katrina it was a house not far from my parents church literally steps away so the church bought up most of the land after katrina and happened to buy this house not knowing
1: No, we should explain who he is because yeah we, oh yeah
2: yeah for sure um uh, because that's That's part of where my passion comes from, because I didn't know who he was growing up, unfortunately, and we all should. Buddy Bolden, the legend has it that he is the seed that planted jazz music. The story is that he was playing his horn too loud in the house. So his mom told him, go outside. He goes on the stoop and plays it. The legend says you could hear him all the way, like across town. And so a friend of his heard him playing and they formed the band that Majority of the world says is the first time they heard jazz music. He died
1: at a young age. He died mental illness. You know, there's a theory that he had a vitamin deficiency. Is that right? Which is very common, apparently. Wow. If you were poor, and that it wasn't, you know, because people assumed it was schizophrenia. Because I think he ended up in asylum, but he that did. it may have actually he had been breakdown. It may have been rate. a nutritional. Wow. Yeah.
2: Something so simple now, right? Yeah. But, like it seemed complex then. Um, but I just think his story is important. There's literally one picture of him that exists, mm-hmm. no recordings, yeah. and we're still talking about him a hundred years later. So mm-hmm. he did something, you know. Yeah, King Oliver played in his band. Different people played right. in his band. That's right, and that th- these are the people who carried on his story. Yeah. Um, so we got this house, which was actually low-income housing before Katrina. It wasn't, nobody was making a big deal about it, yeah. which is probably why my parents didn't know. Right. Um, so it's it's been sort of an uphill battle just because it was new for me. I was just excited about it, but never been in the nonprofit space, never had to raise money for anything. But this vision, man, is, is so important. It's the house that he actually lived in, and then there's a identical house right next to it. So I'm calling it the past house and the future house. So I want his actual home the left side of it to be a small museum, just the lineage of New Orleans, which I think is not only jazz, but really American music. You know, our jazz didn't really turn into contemporary jazz, it turned into R&B with Fats and those guys, and I feel like Elvis was chasing Fats, you know, and, and became rock and roll, you know, so I just think that it's an important story to tell. So we want to do the museum and then the right side where he actually lived will be his house as it as it was lived in. And then the right house I want to make like an event center to continue that innovation. I want to teach everything from uh, except performance really cuz I think New Orleans has that covered, but I want to teach the things that maybe left him to die broke, you know, teach publishing and teach songwriting and teach engineering and and law. So I'm I'm really excited about it. It has taken much longer than I wanted it to, but I I'm still inspired and still passionate about the project. And uh, can't wait to see it come to fruition fully. We'll be right back after a break with more from PJ Morton and Bruce Headlam.
0: As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with the rest of Bruce Hedlam's
1: conversation with PJ Morton. I do want to talk about this new album, yeah. Watch the Sun. Yeah, of course. Tell me about the recording of this album. Tell me what you were thinking going into it.
2: Yeah, well, I wasn't really planning on doing an album. I just was coming off of a like crazy run. I mean, I just went back to back to back with, with music uh, more than I ever had before, actually, but it just was rolling. So I was rolling with it, and then we got shut down. I was with Maroon 5 in South America. In real time, the show started to get canceled. We had to fly back to the States. And when we got back initially, I had voice notes from like March 2020. I was in this creative like, it was just coming faster than I could even control it. And I got some music beds that actually ended up on this album two years later. But my laptop crashed like right after that. And I lost all that stuff. All I had was the voice notes. You couldn't nobody could get it back? I got a lot of my files back, a lot of my drums back, but not those new songs that I was Mm -hmm. working on. It was just not saved yet. It was pretty, pretty always back up for the musicians at home. Oh my God, please. Yeah, I know this too. Like this is what I did was it got bad and I probably could have recovered it. I went further than I should have and got this. Something offline that said it could save my files, and it just my computer did something that I've never seen before. It was so bad. I was just desperate. But what I realized was I needed to stop, like, just uh, stop, you know, and not. Not do anything. It's okay. Like, I'm just, uh, you know, I say I'm a recovering workaholic. So I took that time to to really focus on family, focus on life. Taught my two youngest how to ride bikes. I mean, just just really, I was, was building bookcases and bikes and all kind of stuff, you know. So I had these music beds because I wanted to start with just music, no lyrics. And I usually don't do that. I go pretty quick after I have music. I usually go in, in and write it. But I wanted to be so intentional this time around, like more intentional than I've ever been, more honest and open than I've ever been. And so I took that time to just have the music beds. Then we moved into Gumbo Studios and I started to build it even more. Still music, no lyrics. And maybe about a year after that, I told my engineer, Reggie, that we should
1: find a, a studio where we could live there So you just built a studio and then you wanted to use a studio somewhere else. Yeah,
2: because, you know, I don't know if people realize, but when we were all shut down, we lost all these gigs, but it was replaced with live streams and like more interviews than ever, really, because you were there, you know? So I feel like I had to, I wasn't away enough, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like I needed an away from the away So I was like, I just need to go away. And we discovered Studio in the Country uh, in Bugalusa, Louisiana, where Stevie did Secret Life of Plants. There's a Frankie Beverly and May's album that was made out there. I hear there's an unreleased uh, Betty Davis record that was recorded out there. But this amazing studio that was built in the 70s, and, um, and there's a house on the grounds that you can stay at. Me and the band, and this was the first time we were even starting to You know, I remember we had to test to go out there. First time we were around people without masks. And so that was freeing in itself. And this place was so magical. It just made me want to write immediately. Like, that's all I wanted to do. I threw myself into it. And this is the first time I started to write some lyrics. I feel like I had finally processed these things I want to say. And uh, we just started building. I had the band. So the how it would go is I, I'd wake up because I wake up pretty early every day and go in myself, go to the piano, write, come up with some ideas. And then I call the band in to to hit the parts that I wanted to hit. And first week of us being there is majority of the album as far as sonically. Yeah. A uh, couple of the vocals. I ended up cutting vocals later. Reggie and I went again. I mean, we, we did three four trips to, to the country. I didn't fully started singing into the, to the second time. It just was an experience. It felt magical and it felt deeper than just records at this point. It's like I really was, by being as honest and authentic as I was trying to be, I think it is it, going to connect to people. I've seen it uh, that I've let people hear now, but I think it's going to connect in another way After you made as much music as I've made, it's almost like that was all that was left at this point was for me to, you know, just give you more of myself. Because the type of songwriter I am, there's always myself in it, but I also, in general, bring other people's stories. I'm a people watcher, you know, but this time was a lot more specific to me.
1: Can you play a little bit of a song that came out of that first week?
2: Yeah, well please don't walk away. I said this on the piano album just as a passing thing. Where when I before I sang to my wife, I said that, you know, this has been like the toughest I either I said year or, you know, it's been a rough period for us, but that was true. We we had really gone through some challenges, you know, been married thirteen years, got married really young. So please don't walk away was literally the first song I think I wrote lyrics to.
3: Gone this far, it's never been this bad. But I won't let it erase the memories of good times we've had. Oh, and even with everything. Mm that we've been going through oh, you never have to ask me i still choose you oh girl please don't walk away from my love oh, From my love. Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, that was the first one. (laughs) Yeah. I I hope it did the trick. <laughs> it did. <though. laughs> she didn't walk away. All as well.
1: <laughs> we're good now, you said, man. Yeah, I, I can't write another one like that. So you, that <laughs> wow, was fabulous. Right. Yeah. What's crazy
2: is we, we we were in a good space then. Like we had. It's almost like I have to process it and go through it first uh, in order to talk about what. Ha- I can't really talk about what's happening while it's happening. Um, right. Usually, yeah.
1: But a lot of the albums very heartfelt, yes. very vulnerable. I would say. Yeah, it's very much about breakups or the possibility of breakups it's yeah. it's a tough album sure when you sat down you know you play that for your band and then you don't write music so how do you arrange it with them
2: yeah well thankfully i mean well i do have you know berkeley graduates with me and stuff so but but thankfully all my guys around me are also church cats the way i grew up so we communicate in a different way it's not through you know sheet music It's it's through just talking, you know. I can call out a two or a five or a one, you know, or or four. Um, so I know enough where we can communicate musically. It's not because I didn't go through school. It's not be- that I don't understand the movements of things. We we just kind of have
1: come up with our own language, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's a shame they had to go to Berkeley, really.
3: Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, shout take, out to Brian.
1: Takes <laughs> them so long. Uh, so, what's next
2: for you? I am gonna get on the road. <laughs> you know, I I miss that so much. We just did a few shows and um I can't wait to to play this new stuff live. I mean, it's made for it. I thought of the album in that way. The album just continues like my shows do. You know, mm-hmm. it's not really a lot of break in there. They just flow from one to the other. And I just can't wait to to present that to everybody. And really to it's the community. I think it's me that church growing up in church and having that weekly community where you share this experience. I just can't wait to share this experience of this really honest music with my supporters. So that's next. I'm scoring an animated film right now. Okay. What's that like? Uh It's fun, man. Uh Well, in my case, because the director is a fan of mine. Like, you know, he really already digs what I do. I imagine it could be frustrating when somebody is just, you're just put in a position to do it. Uh, But this guy wants PJ songs. So it's so cool because this uh, story is so weird that it allows me to go places that I would never get to go in my own music. So it's like PJ doing weird, different uh, cool stuff. It's really exciting for me. I'm enjoying that process. So there, there's that. There's some TV shows that I'm scoring as well. I, I like that side of it too, because my, my music is so visual that I like when I have to create to a visual.
1: It's pretty mm-hmm. fun. So recovering workaholic, huh?
2: <laughs> yeah, in my, in my sense, you know, even like this big tour, this is new for me, brand new for me, where in the summer we'll, we'll do two weeks on, two weeks off, something I've never done in my life. But I understand now that just as much as I plan for these things, I have to actually plan for the other stuff that's important to me. So we'll see how that goes. But two weeks on, two weeks off is a, a big start for
1: this recovering uh, work. OK, <laughs> let's see how that works.
2: <laughs> we'll yeah. see. I'll check back
1: in. <laughs> OK, um, it's been fabulous. And the album is fabulous. Thank you, thank you so much for coming oh, in. Thank you for having it's me, just man. So beautifully. It's been a pleasure. It's, it's a great you, album. Thank All right, it's a real treat. All right.
0: Thanks to P.J. Morton for taking us through his incredible career as a solo musician and a sideman. You can hear all of our favorite P.J. Morton songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find all our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at Broken Record. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Holiday, Eric Sandler, and Jennifer Sanchez, with engineering help from Nick Chaffee. Our executive producer is Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you like this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month.
4: Look for Pushkin
0: Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music is by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond.
4: To inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to Musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com to start a new musical journey today.
6: It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentioned, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job and we have to find out. Who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible
5: to unearth the truth? I used to watch um the unsolved mystery
3: shows and I often thought about calling because I was like this is this is not right how can a person get killed and no one knows anything I'm Jake Halpern
6: and this is Deep Cover The Nameless Man listen wherever you get your podcasts and if you want to hear the entire season right now ad free subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm.com slash plus.